0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey gang, one of the things that has always attracted me to Buddhism is that it takes a tough love, no-nonsense approach. As I understand their message, The Buddhists, I should say my fellow Buddhists, are not saying you can solve all of your problems through the power of positive thinking. They're also not promising salvation through some death-denying dogma. Again, as I understand it, what they're saying is that if you want to be happier, you first need to face some hard truths. To be clear, by happiness, I slash we are not talking about jumping up in the air because you just won the lottery or you got a lot of likes on your most recent Instagram post. Let's not confuse excitement for happiness here. In my opinion, happiness, properly understood, is something like living a well-adjusted, flourishing, meaningful, useful life in the world as it really is. And step one is understanding the world as it really is. Which brings us to today's episode. We're gonna talk about a Buddhist list called the three characteristics. If you listen to the show, you know the Buddha made a lot of lists and we like to build episodes, sometimes entire series of episodes around the Buddha's various lists, which are all designed to help us do life better. Anyway, the three characteristics are the three non-negotiable truths about reality, which you have to see and understand in order to be happy. Again, I'm using the word happy in the most profound sense. I should say, when looked at from a certain angle, these truths or characteristics of reality can suck at times, but ask yourself this, do you want to see the truth of things or not? Do you want to be happier or not? Our guide through these three characteristics will be the mighty Mushim Patricia Ikeda Mushim has a background in both monastic and lay Buddhist practice and is a core teacher and community director at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California, a phenomenal organization worth checking out and supporting. This is Mushim's second appearance on the show. In this conversation, we talk about the three characteristics, alternately known as the three Dharma seals. We also talk about our conflicted relationship to change, our brain's tendency to focus on the negative Practices that can help us handle change more effectively, how not taking your thoughts and emotions so personally can build up your resilience. And we talk about, and this is a biggie and a bit of a mind bender, why Mushim believes that universal non discriminating love is synonymous with nirvana. But first, some uh, BSP, blatant self promotion. Just to say, real quick, don't forget to check out. DanHarris.com, my new website where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I haven't been promoting that hard because we've been honing it in the background. But um, now I really feel good about it. And uh, it's a place where I sum up the key learnings for me from the week's episodes and also make a bunch of cultural recommendations, whatever books and TV shows and movies I'm enjoying right now. Go check it out, danharris.com. We also have a new merch store where you can buy 10% happier gear. And also uh, some gear festooned with my profanity lace slogans, danharris.com. Meanwhile, over on the 10% Happier app, from Monday, May 13th to Sunday, May 19th, we're going to be celebrating World Meditation Week with a whole series of free meditations available right there on the app. Every day, something new and unique designed to help beginners and seasoned meditators. And because we're so excited about it, we're going to be offering 40% off the subscription price until the end of May. Head over to 10 percent.com dot com slash 40. That's 10% spelled out dot com slash four zero to get started. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's slash happier Mushim Patricia Ikeda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Dan.
0: So let me start with a I uh, I hope not impermanent. <laughs> that was a funny slip of the tongue. I hope not impertinent question, because everything's impermanent, as we will discuss. But here it is. What are the three characteristics, alternatively known as the three Dharma seals? And so what? Why should we care?
1: That's a big question. That is fairly impertinent. And I do, I like, (laughs) I I like, I like friendly impertinence. So thank you very much. What are the three Dharma characteristics, alternately known as the three Dharma seals? Okay, that's, we'll do that first. And then why should we care? That is the S word, should. So Mm -hmm. I will respond to that. The three Dharma characteristics, the three characteristics as I understand it, come from what I understand is the the older stratum of Buddhist teachings in what's called the Theravada, which translates as path of the elders. And I believe they're said to be the three characteristics that mark, that characterize our human existence. The first being a word that's translated as impermanence. Then these are words from the ancient Buddhist language of Pali, P-A-L-I. The second characteristic being the very badly translated into English. Sometimes it said no self, non-self. I don't like those words. I say no permanent, unchanging self. And the third characteristic being dukkha, which has no satisfactory translation into English, and it's often translated as suffering. However, it's better translated as unsatisfactoriness, the quality of things never being as the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction, and I've tried, that that marks human life. Now, I come from the Mahayana, or northern school of Buddhism, which in the teachings of Tiknat Han, which have greatly influenced me, changed that third characteristic from dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or suffering. It flips it to the other side and says that the third seal of Dharma, which guarantees that it's the true Dharma teaching, is nirvana or Nibbana, which means freedom from suffering or freedom, liberation from dukkha. So that's all very technical. And you ask, why should we care? I don't know. I don't know why anyone should care about that. I don't think anyone should have to care about anything they don't care about. So let me state that up front, categorically. Why do you care? Why do I care? Is that actually the real question you're asking?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think I'm always getting at the practical takeaways for my listeners. What here can help them do their lives better?
1: What here can help our listeners do their lives better? This is my personal take on it, Dan. I personally think that I've never met a person who has said, sincerely, I'm completely happy. I have no suffering in my life. I have nothing to complain about ever. So that's not Buddhist, I don't think. This is a universal statement. I mean, maybe there is someone. I've never met them. Unusual, let's put it that way, and improbable. So what we're talking about here that I feel that might be of potential to help our listeners As he said, do their lives, by which I'm picking up that you mean function, function. I'm a very practical person. In my own experience, there is an incredible amount of suffering and dissatisfaction for me, and I feel for others. I am a Buddhist teacher. I'm also a secular mindfulness teacher. So I talk to a lot of people and I hear their stories. There's a lot of affliction. There's a lot of suffering that comes from an underlying unconscious assumption that things that we love and like will not change. Even though logically, I think that most people who believe in science and so forth would say, yeah, pretty much everything does change. I mean, really, just think about looking at your own baby pictures or something like that, and then look in the mirror today, there's got to have been a change. And we could go on and list bajillions more examples. However, even though this evidence is staring us right in the face, right in the face, over and over and over again in multiple ways, I think there is something about our human brain that desires for things that we love and like, to be unchanging, to be a constant source of happiness, of satisfaction, of protection, of nourishment, a financial resource, and why not? That is what we want. It's not what we have. Impermanence is real. And I always try to remind people because Neuroscience says the human brain does a lot of negative filtering and emphasizes the negative. I always remind people, impermanence is a two-way street. The bratty little kid we're dealing with today, tomorrow, takes a developmental leap and becomes a sort of reasonable, individuated human being that we can talk to about all kinds of things. I've seen that happen in my own journey as a parent.
0: I'm going to ask another unfair question. Um <laughs> Just, I I can't help it. I know natural selection isn't, uh, we, we shouldn't personify evolution, but why on earth do you reckon nature would design us as creatures living in a universe of ceaseless change to be so resistant to said change?
1: That's an untrue statement. We're not resistant to changes we like. We're not resistant to changes. We (laughs) like it. It's a half-true
0: statement. (laughs)
1: Exactly. That's why I say there's a return shift here, and our brains need to hopefully adjust to that. Like, oh, yeah, today I was thinking, my stupid friends, my birthday is coming up, and no one has recognized that. And then our friends throw us a surprise birthday party with our favorite cake, and we're like, oh, wow. Wow. Folks are just the greatest. You're the greatest. That's impermanence, too.
0: So maybe the question should be, why would natural selection have designed us for such a conflicted relationship to change, given that change is happening all the time?
1: My take on that, Dan, is that because we have very large brains, probably not big enough, Because in many ways, human beings are not doing so well on the planet right now. However, that having been said, our basic equipment as it's evolved, in my understanding, is we have this huge prefrontal cortex. And then we have other parts of the brain, all of which do not communicate with one another in a unified whole. That's my understanding, to put it in very crude layperson's terms. And I do read quite a bit about this so that I can understand myself and others better. And I think what it is, is that human brains are capable of thinking and processing about all kinds of things which, boosted by technology and all of the tech that we have right now, and all of the data that's just streaming in to the human brain through the mobile phone, through the online connections that we have, that our nervous systems actually weren't designed to be able to process all of that conflicting, huge data, everything from absolutely traumatic information about climate crisis down to what makeup K-pop stars are using and everything in between. I mean, that is a huge, huge set of weird data, much of it conflicting and much of it not connecting to other parts of that data set. In the meantime, our physical apparatus, so to speak, I think it's basically designed for maybe like a hunter-gatherer or agrarian kind of existence where we'd be very in touch with the amount of daylight, the weather, the seasons, the sources of food, because we would probably be hungry a great deal of the time. And we would be concerned for protection from immediate physical threats like large carnivorous animals. So I think in the way that we've evolved, we've got an incredible set of equipment, so to speak, as a human being. It's not all interfacing smoothly.
0: So it's not just that evolution screwed up in terms of creating a highly functioning organism in a world of ceaseless change. It's that we've created a world that evolution couldn't have envisioned.
1: If you want to put it that way. I don't personify evolution. I think it's just what's happened.
0: Okay, enough of my uh, stupid questions. Let Well, well I'm going to move on to different stupid <laughs> questions. We've already started on the list with uh, impermanence. Can you say more about the importance of impermanence within the context of this list and Buddhist practice?
1: It's the basis of everything, I think, within the context of this list and Buddhist practice and mindfulness practice as well, secular mindfulness practice. If we can... Spend some time, really every day, hopefully check in with it several times a day and ask ourselves, am I experiencing any points in which I feel stuck, in which I feel like my thoughts keep looping round and round and round again, and those are not helpful thoughts. They're not happy thoughts. They're complaining thoughts, like... Why the heck is this politician such an idiot? And why this? And why that? And those people? And that thing? I'm not talking about constructive critique. I'm talking about what's called in psychology, I think, ruminative thought. Just circling, 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 causing us to become more and more grumpy, possibly more and more frightened, possibly more and more angry and kind of ruining our day, can we check in and say, am I experiencing any of these kinds of thoughts? And if so, let me just back off a little bit, just take a moment, take a breath and ask, do I have an underlying assumption here that things won't change, that things can't change, or to put it in our vocabulary, that impermanence, in fact, is not a fact. Do I really believe in impermanence? And there might be part of us, if we're honest, that says, I don't want to. No, of course not. I don't want to believe that the person that I'm in love with today may leave me for another person two years from now. I don't want to believe that the child that I love so deeply with all my heart might get sick, I'm just going to say it, and die before me. Yet, when we look around, when I look around, happens all the time. So for me, it's actually a pretty cognitive and rational process with myself to ask myself, do I really believe in impermanence or am I just kind of faking it sometimes?
0: So when you ask yourself that question, you check in on, on your level of acceptance of impermanence, what kind of answers do you get back?
1: Parts of my brain often scream, no, 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 no. I'm pretty in touch with certain parts of my brain. I'm sure not all of them, Dan. And that's honestly, that is what I get. I mean, I gave you the example. Being a mother, I live with my adult child. I only have one, is a big part of my learning and my identity, my spiritual growth. I mean, I just love my kid. And I do know other people who have lost their children. I mean, that does happen, that does happen. In fact, quite a bit. It could be a drug overdose, it could be an accident, and then the child is in a coma, and then severely disabled. It could be sudden infant death syndrome, So I realize that this might be upsetting to our listeners, and I'm saying it with complete sympathy and empathy as a mother and as someone who's worked with a lot of children, someone who cares about children, that this is a fact. And I place a regular amount of attention to examining that resistance and that assumption that I have sometimes that... I will get older. I'm 68. I'll die, I hope, peacefully. But then again, that's an assumption. And that my child will be a high-functioning adult who'll be able to take care of himself. I don't have any God that tells me, hey, Mushim, that life script, you've got it. You've got it in the bag. That's exactly how the script will run. There is no life script as far as I know.
0: I'm actually glad you brought this up. I know it's probably upsetting to, it's upsetting to me, uh, and I'm sure it's upsetting to many listeners, especially listeners who have kids. But we can universalize this beyond just people with kids. You're, You're essentially asking us to contemplate the most painful possible changes we can imagine and ask ourselves, are we okay with this possibility? Because that possibility is real.
1: Exactly. So we can widen it to if we love our job or maybe we don't love it, but it's providing a very good income for us. It could be our home. It could be our nation. It could be anything that we cherish. There will be change, sometimes desirable, sometimes undesirable.
0: And so I'm just curious, as somebody who's done, you've, you've done a significant amount of Buddhist practice and continue to do so and teach other people to do so, which is a kind of deep reinforcement of the learnings. How set up do you think you are to handle the most painful variants of change? More
1: impertinent questions, Dan. I can see that <laughs> that's where we're going. The true answer to that is, I do not know. And the other answer to that is, However, I am doing my best. I am doing my level best to prepare. I do believe in preparation. I think that's part of many spiritual traditions and possibly many non-spiritual traditions. For instance, the house that I rent a flat in here in Oakland, California, is to my knowledge sitting right on top of the giant Hayward Fault. And we are, according to seismologists, overdue for the next gigantic earthquake that's going to level possibly large parts of the Bay Area and maybe even split off parts of the coast into the ocean. And so I'm not perfect. However, I have earthquake preparation, like a backpack and a couple of crowbars and three days supply of water in my stairwell, things like that. Similarly, I spend quite a bit of time, probably every day, or very often contemplating how resilient I feel to be able to accept, not like, but to be able to accept and therefore hopefully try to deal with as best I can possibly giant, undesirable changes that may affect me and many, many other people. I hardly need to mention we are now in the third year of the global COVID-19 pandemic. And that changed everything almost overnight at a speed and a rate that completely bewildered me. I was not prepared for that. I'm kind of sort of prepared for an earthquake because I live in Oakland and that's part of how we live here is with that awareness or we should, I'll use the word should. However, for the pandemic, I was not prepared at all And now that it has happened and I've had several years to try to adapt as best I can, that's the big wake-up bell for me. Like, Mushim, you are not prepared for that at all. You couldn't have been. I'm not reproaching myself. So what if there are other changes that are like that? What if there are other changes that are like that, that everything changes within a matter of weeks, practically overnight? Am I ready to buckle down and say, I didn't want it, I hate this, and this is what I have. These are the circumstances and the realities that I see now. How can I help myself? How can I help others?
0: Coming up, Mushim Patricia Ikeda talks about how we can help ourselves and others deal with change and why not taking your own thoughts so personally can help with that. After this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans the weather is getting warmer time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees Slash happier. I'm going to go back to the practical tip. You've mentioned at least one and maybe two things that we all can do to embrace ourselves for unpleasant change. This practice you have kind of just touching in with yourself, of gauging how ready you are. I think you've mentioned that twice and I, I, th- I think it's kind of the same practice both times, but what would you recommend to us? And, and maybe there's a little hint of that in the last words you uttered in your last answer around being ready to help others. But what are the impermanence girding practices that you recommend to your students?
1: You picked it up. Be prepared to help ourselves and help others. I personally have taken, along with millions of other people, Buddhist vows, which are called the Bodhisattva vows, which are accompanied by a set of ethical guidelines called the Bodhisattva precepts. And these guide my everyday life, my everyday actions. I'm certainly far from perfect at fulfilling them. When I teach them, I always say, these are impossible vows. So if you're Interested in taking these vows, just know they contradict the rule of don't try to eat anything that's bigger than your head. (laughs) This is trying to ingest something that's so much bigger than your own head. I mean, it is a kind of a bizarre thing. However, as humans, we do bizarre things all the time. And if we're drawn to these vows, what we commit to doing, and I have committed to doing, as has His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, as had... Thich Han, as have many, many people, both known and unknown, I've committed to really trying to show up every day and trying to be of help, trying to be of help to other people. I think His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, wherever I go, I try to help whoever I can. And if I can't be of help, at least I try not to harm something. And that's a very practical way of putting it. In the positive sense, yes, I try to be of help and support to at least one person or one living being every day. And in an emergency situation, that wouldn't be impermanent, I hope, is that I would show up and I would try to be of help to myself and to others. And that could take any form. You notice I'm not saying I have a plan in place.
0: How does helping other people and vowing to continue to do so, help you handle non-negotiable change?
1: Well, first of all, the vow is actually not centered on people. It's on all living beings, the vow to try to help all living beings. And these days, we think of the environment, the earth, as a living being. I certainly do. And how that vow helps me to navigate non-negotiable change is to understand that if I can be of help to any living being, which is pretty broad, I mean, hopefully we can do that, of any living being, including myself, in the moment that's already produced a change. I hope you would agree with that. If in that moment I'm able to water a plant that is all dried up, but not dead, that's already produced a change. My action has produced the potential for beneficial change. One of my practices that I like to do, one of my co-workers at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, where I teach, once called me the gratitude czar, because it's a very long-standing practice that I try to write or call or email at least one expression of gratitude every day. Like write a thank you card that goes in the postal mail. Certainly in email, I hope that if we had an algorithm that picked up how many times I've written thank you in in emails that it would be thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And verbal thank yous as well. Sometimes it's really fun to pick up the phone and call someone that I've been thinking of whom I haven't been in touch with for a long time. For instance, my poetry mentor that I had in college. Every once in a while, I'll pick up the phone and I'll say, David, I've been thinking of you. And then we have a wonderful conversation. And these expressions of gratitude do have impact. They produce change.
0: So yes, I think I understand what you're saying there in terms of instead of sitting back and being a helpless recipient of change, you're actually out producing positive change. And I wonder at the same time, whether boosting your own capacity for gratitude, practicing compassion, which we know has all kinds of physiological and psychological benefits, creates a more resilient mushim in the face of whatever might arise.
1: Absolutely. And In my understanding, that isn't Buddhist at all. I do have a practice of prayer, and I do a fair amount of interfaith dialogue and work. In my experience, it's maybe universal to what we might call prayer. The activity that we call prayer is that one form of prayer is to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what I'm receiving. Thank you for my life. Thank you for, even though my life is, miserable today. I am alive. And so today I have the potential to see an improvement in my depression or for a lessening of my anxiety. Today there is a potential for someone I love who is sick to get better. I do not know what today will bring. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to find out. Or there could be expressions of gratitude in prayer of, thank you for, I recently got cataract surgery in both my eyes. I wake up every morning, Dan, and I say, thank you for my sight. It's often those kinds of prayers bring our attention back to things that we might normally take for granted if we're moving with As the Buddhist teachings say, too much force and speed, too much momentum, gotta do this, gotta do that. I mean, how long does it take to just pause and stop? I'm so grateful for my eyes if I'm a seeing person. I'm so grateful for my lunch. Not everybody gets lunch. We might not even like our lunch. To acknowledge, not everyone gets to have lunch. It's a big part of my practice.
0: I think that's extremely powerful personally. Before we run out of time, we have a couple of other characteristics or dharma seals to power through here. So I want to just move on to the next one, which is, as you said earlier, often ham-fistedly translated as no-self or not-self. And this is, in my experience personally, probably the hardest Buddhist notion to wrap your head around. So what say you vis-a-vis the contention that the self is an illusion?
1: The self is not an illusion. This is something that comes up over and over and over again with people who come to me as a Buddhist teacher. This is my personal understanding from my own practice and study. The conventional self is not an illusion. And I always say to people who ask, if you're in the United States and it comes time to pay your taxes and you tell the IRS, I don't owe you anything because there is no I, there's no permanent self here, they're not going to buy it. If someone comes up unexpectedly and hits me in the face and I scream, ow, why did you do that? There is something there that is screaming, ow. There's not some illusion that immediately evaporates and doesn't feel the impact of basically being assaulted. There is a self. Dan, for you, what if I said, forget about No self, forget about non-self. Those are really bad translations in English as far as I'm concerned. Really inaccurate. As you said, ham-fisted. What if I said to you, Dan, do you believe about yourself that you have no unchanging self? And that's an open question, actually, because people who do believe in what might be called an immortal soul do believe in that. Usually Buddhists do not. So if I, I ask you... What is your belief? Is there some Dan Harris essence that is totally unchanging?
0: I don't think so. I have not found it. And a couple of smart things come to mind said by other people. One is what's often translated as no self might be better translated by adding one key consonant, the letter T, not self, meaning that if you sit in meditation or just pay attention to anything happening in your mind right now, You can't point at anything and say, that is me or mine. It is not self. Any anger that's arising, where's the essence of you in it? Any thought you're having, try to hold that and point to it as yours. That seems like a pretty useful sorting mechanism. The other smart thing that's coming to mind was said, apparently, by a Tibetan monk who was actually from the Tibetan tradition, but apparently he's from Mongolia, and it was said to Robert Thurman, the Buddhist scholar, and I'm getting this like fourth hand, but he said, this monk did something to the effect of, you think you're real, and you are real, but you're not really real. (laughs) So I think that kind of describes it. Yeah, I have to pay my taxes and put my pants on, but on some fundamental level, if I look for some little homunculus of me between my ears or behind my eyes, I can't find it.
1: That's a good way of putting it. And you were kind enough to, before we started, ask for the a more accurate pronunciation of my name. Mushim is a Korean Buddhist name. I think it's a Zen, Korean Zen Buddhist name. And Mushim is sometimes literally translated as no heart mind or no heart or no mind. It's a pretty... I would say high class in a certain way, Zen name, because the word mushim comes from the Heart Sutra, which is highly revered in Mahayana Buddhism. It's very cryptic and people can spend their whole lives contemplating it. Like, what the heck does that mean? We can't figure it out with our normal discursive thought processes. It needs to be something that comes from spiritual experience and insight and breakthrough. And... Therefore, in the name that was given to me in Toronto, Canada in 1983, when I took my vows, it holds it up right there every day. It's looking me right in the face. If I'm doing a Zoom and I put my Buddhist name into the name field with my name and my pronouns and where I'm located, it's looking at me head on, just right in front of me all the time, saying that there is in the Buddhist teachings, and in my own experience. There is no essential self. There are many other mushims. I'm not unique. I'm not an isolated individual who's apart from everything else. The other way of explaining this, Dan, which I'm sure you've heard, is to say I am not isolated as an autonomous, siloed, self-contained unit from everything else in the universe. It's a principle of interconnection, what is called interbeing, and that's not a fancy philosophical concept. The person I call I could not be who I, in quotes, am without everything that I've encountered, everything I've thought about, all of my experiences. Here I am, I'm talking to you. And so this conversation is taking place within a unique relationship at a unique point in time. So I'm showing up here as like some version, some version of me, and you're showing up as some version of you. And there's definitely something there that we can point to. If you acted inconsistent with previous versions of yourself, listeners might say, I don't even think that's Dan Harris, or wow, he must be having a strange day. Same thing with me. People who know me on a pretty daily basis could say, yeah, that behavior was characteristic of the Mushim or the Patricia we know, or wow, she seemed to be totally off base. She was very, very different there. That having been said, can we continue to remind ourselves that within each relationship, within each, I guess it might be called the gestalt, that there is a slightly to hugely different version of what we call the self that shows up, that functions, and then that changes.
0: We talked quite a bit about the practical benefits of understanding change, of understanding impermanence. What are the practical benefits of understanding that we don't have an unchanging nugget of self that we can find?
1: Huge practical benefits, I think, which is... To try to have a resilient mindset, and this is something I try to teach and that I try to learn, is don't take something personally unless you know 100% it is personal. Mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, and related forms of therapy invites us to use mindfulness meditation to be able to catch and isolate specific thoughts that are causing us suffering. A very, very common thought would be, people don't like me. People don't like me in a specific workplace or at my church or parents group, whatever. People don't like me. That is a thought. It may, of course, cause us to feel terrible, paranoid and sad and angry and depressed. And then those types of therapies... Ask us to then back off from that, give it a little bit of space, and say, how do I know? What's the actual evidence for that? Have five people from my group come up to me and said, you know what? I totally dislike you. Or email that to me. Have I actually got direct feedback? What data am I basing this thought on, this afflictive thought? Nobody likes me. I don't think people like me. Is that actually true? I'm not ruling out the fact that, in fact, it might be true. It might be true. In most cases that I know of, it's not true at all. The same person that I'm talking to who one minute is crying and saying, "Mushim, I'm so terrible. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes me. And I accept that is a huge form of suffering. And when I say, and what's your evidence for that? I can't tell you, Dan, how many times the person has done a 180-degree, not 120, not 60 degrees, 180-degree flip. Their face brightens up, their expression changes, they're showing up in a different part of their brain and as a different part of their self. And I say, I guess it means you have no friends. That same person will say, oh, no, I have five of the best friends in the world. They would do anything for me. I love my friends. So we do have different parts of the brain that don't talk to each other. And these days we have ways and mindfulness is very old. What we call mindfulness is very old. There are ways and practices that we can stop and pause and just try to not take it so personally or believe everything that we think and ask ourselves, is this really true? It is a feeling. A feeling is true. If I feel sad, you're not going to tell me you don't feel sad. I do feel sad. However, if the thought that accompanies a feeling is, oh, everybody hates me. I just know it. These days, imposter syndrome. People think I'm competent, but if they really knew me, I'm faking it. I'm a fake. I hardly know what I'm doing, and I will be exposed at any moment. If we're able to immediately not take it personally in a sense of thinking, must be true, must be true because I'm thinking it, then we're able to usually form a more 360 degree and a more nuanced and usually a more positive model of reality in which we're able to say, you know what, I'm pretty good at some things. I'm terrible at other things. I'm fair to middling in other things and skills. I am trying my best. And overall, I'm doing pretty well. That's not a sexy thought. That's a more accurate thought. So not taking everything personally is huge. It is can be a huge improvement in our lives.
0: Yes, I completely agree. Up next, we're going even deeper. We're going to talk about nirvana and why Mushim believes universal non-discriminating love is synonymous with nirvana. or text 10% to 500-500, that's audible.com slash 10%, or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days, audible.com slash 10%. I suspect we'll come back to this, but in the meantime, let me just power on to the third characteristic, or Dharma seal, Although actually this is kind of a 3A and B situation because in the Theravada or old school Buddhism, the third characteristic is suffering, another suboptimal translation you offered before the word, unsatisfactoriness. And then in the Mahayana or later stages of Buddhism, we come to the 3B, which is Nirvana or Nibbana, which is the notion of relief from suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So. If you wouldn't mind, can you just sort of hold forth on these two related concepts?
1: I'll do my best and I'll pick up on something that I don't think I said before. My understanding of the third point in the model called the three Dharma seals being nirvana, nibbana, the potential for liberation from dukkha, from suffering slash unsatisfactoriness, that The meaning of the word seal in the three Dharma seals is like a stamp of certification or approval, like the way that old documents used to have a seal, stamp it, with a seal meaning this is genuine, or you go to get a document to be notarized. What Thich Nhat Hanh, I believe, said is that we can know any teaching to be what we might call Dharma, which in Buddhism has many meanings. One meaning is universal truth or universal law that we can know this teaching, whatever tradition it comes from, or no tradition. We can know this teaching to be true in the widest sense if it is sealed with these three Dharma seals. So it can't be one seal. It has to be one, two, three, stamp, stamp, stamp. Okay, checks out for me at any rate right now. And so this is something that in my life I'm going to feel is one of the big truths. That's the meaning of dharma seal. It's important for us, and what I've said to people when when I do Buddhist teaching, is to again look at that tendency of the human brain for negative filtering. And also to acknowledge, as I said, unless you're here in my Buddhist class out of idle curiosity, which is possible usually not probable, because people's time is precious. So I usually say, unless you're here out of idle curiosity, I'm assuming that you are here because you are suffering in some way, and very understandably so. A lot of my teaching is focused within and held within the Black Indigenous people of color community, people with disabilities and chronic illness, and Again, the meditation center that I'm with here in Oakland is centered on the needs of historically excluded communities, including the LGBTQIA two-spirit community, people of color, people with disabilities and chronic pain. And so, again, I always say, I assume that you're here because you're in pain and you're seeking, of course, relief from pain. This particular path, these particular teachings, these particular practices may not in fact be your cup of tea and I'm not here to force anything on you. What I'm here to do is try to introduce you to these teachings and these practices, hopefully in a way you can relate to, hopefully in a way that's more accessible to you so that you can try them on and see if they work for you. If they do, fine. If they don't, No problem whatsoever. As I said, I myself have a personal practice of prayer, and this includes Christian prayer, which I have received from very dear colleagues of mine who are very strong Christian practitioners. That's part of my own personal practice, and it has relieved me of a lot of suffering. It has worked, and it continues to work. So that third characteristic, that third dharma seal, hopefully we won't forget We have things, I hope, in our lives that are joyful, that are happy, that have absolutely no problem with them right now, that are in a certain way perfect in the moment. Let's not forget those. And we probably wouldn't be showing up for a spiritual path of practice that demands discipline, time, attention, It's not so fun often. We probably wouldn't be showing up for that unless we have what we might call suffering, unless we have problems we can't solve, unless we're dissatisfied with our lives. And in that sense, that third characteristic and that third dharma seal is an invitation for each of us, if we like, to turn our attention to what we can do to transform what we might call suffering into compassion, into insight into understanding that then brings us greater happiness.
0: And those last words, compassion, greater happiness, understanding, insight, that's kind of, if I'm picking up what you're putting down here, the 3B, my term, of this. It's the flip side of suffering, which in Buddhist circles would be called nirvana or nibbana.
1: Correct. And to give you an example, we had started out with some very difficult material earlier on in this conversation. And I wanted to share with our listeners and with you, Dan, because I know you're a parent, that when my child, who's middle-aged now, was little, I realized I was feeling this strong anxiety. I only have one child. What if something happens to him? I live in Oakland. There are drive-by shootings and things that happen all the time he went through the Oakland Public Schools. And so I realized I was feeling very frightened. I was feeling really anxious. And it was so pressing that I cleared some time during the day when the kid was in school. And instead of doing the work and the chores that I needed to do, I sat on my bed. I was so miserable. I was so, so, so miserable. And I sat on my bed and I did something, I guess you'd call it meditation. I just sank into a place of very deep contemplation. I looked at it in the face and I said to myself, you can't escape from this. You can't run away from this. This is something that is really affecting your everyday life because I was felt myself worrying. And so I just sat there and it took about four days. It was a horrible four days. It was a horrible, horrible, excruciatingly painful four days in which I went through all these levels of resistance and denial and so on and all these changes. And I did come out on the other side of it, Dan. I did. I sweated my way through it because as a Buddhist practitioner, having done quite a bit of Zen meditation, which is usually not fun, it's pretty arduous. I came out of it on the other side and I experienced this sense of incredible relief an incredible happiness. So if something should happen, I don't know whether it will be true or not. I might say to you, I was totally wrong. However, it feels true to me and it has now for over 25 years since that experience when I came out on the other side of that four-day period. It was kind of like a self-retreat. And I came out and what I realized was this, that the love that I've experienced for my kid has been so life-transforming, has been so fantastic, has been so incredible, has been so transformative in every way of my life. I am so grateful for it that that will endure. He may go through the process that we call physical death, but the love that I've experienced for him, I'm convinced that's going to carry through with me For a very long time, possibly forever. And that connects to universal love. It isn't just mine.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: It means that, for instance, in this conversation, although the recording is going to be audio, I'm looking at an image of you. And I'm assuming you're someone's child. You didn't pop out of nowhere. And I don't know what your relationship was to your parents. I'm not probing at all. Wherever there is that kind of relationship, it could be between a guardian and a child. It could be between a grandparent and a child. I'm not saying it has to be a biological parent. It could be an adoptive guardian or parent. could be an older sibling and a younger sibling. In those kinds of intimate relationships, what I mean by that is there is the potential, I believe, for each of us to connect to what could be called universal love universal compassion.
0: Let me see if I can state some of this back in something that resembles a cogent sentence or two. I think what I'm hearing is that there is suffering or unsatisfactoriness in life, and doing this counterintuitive thing of looking at it squarely, diving into it, has the benefits of, A, aligning us with what is To use a word I use a lot, non-negotiably true, and B orienting us toward understanding and relieving the suffering that we experience and that others experience. And that process kind of elevates us out of the muck, the love that you were referring to.
1: That's been my experience. It's not true all the time. I have plenty of bad days and my own struggles with hatred and aversion. However, As I said before, it has really been my experience as a mother, which was not a planned experience, by the way. It was very unexpected. It has been my experience of being a mother and working with a lot of kids to understand that it is, I think, also hardwired into us as human beings, that the potential for connection, for relationship, for nurturing relationship, and for collective relationships that really nourish people's well-beings within collectives and with communities, that that is absolutely part of who we are as human beings. So that potential is there. And a lot of my life work is dedicated to trying to support whatever processes are there and whatever tools and skills are there that we can build as communities to take better care of each other, to take better care of our elders, to take better care of our children, and a lot to take better care of our environment. It's all about relationship.
0: Is that care, relationship, love, is that synonymous with Nirvana? Absolutely.
1: And love can be interpreted as a very sentimental or romantic word in English. We're talking here about universal, non-discriminating love, which is a pretty tall order. Again, I'm not saying that I've got it all down. I absolutely have not. However, I've had glimpses. I've had insights. I have a direction and a trajectory for my practice. And I think that it absolutely is nirvana. It is nibbana. It is liberation from dissatisfaction because I personally believe that there is always the potential in any situation for there to be, even in a brief flash, a loving and caring connection that creates a sense of home, of safety, of belonging, of joy for at least one living being. That's my faith.
0: We started with the impertinent the question of so what? Who cares? Why should we care? Although should became a word that needed some mild litigation. But let me just circle back to that. Now that we've talked about the list in a fuller way, I'd just like to come back to that question of the relevance of it all.
1: The relevance of it all is simple to me is do we want to become happier or not? Look at the title of your organization, 10% Happier. I just love that because on one hand, it uses the word happier. It doesn't say more enlightened or something that sounds like a bunch of BS. It's like eh, happier. That's a subjective experience. And it also says 10%. I particularly like that. It's not even 25%. Can we become 10% happier? It's my personal belief. And the Buddhist teachings say all beings want to live and be happy. Maybe we live and we're surviving. It doesn't necessarily mean we're thriving or we're happier. We could be living as many people are in a terrible war zone. We could be living as many, many people are without access to basic, decent medical care and food and clean air to breathe. And that's not just human beings. I mean, look at our animal companions, dogs and cats. They suffer tremendously if they break their leg or have a kidney disease or something like that. We all want to live and we all want to be happy. And I personally believe that by unpacking and having these kinds of conversations and inquiries that we've just been doing, I personally believe there's a potential there for people to become a lot happier or at least 10%.
0: I pretty obviously agree with that, and these conversations are happening a lot at the place where you work, East Bay Meditation Center. One of the reasons why we had, wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about EBMC and ways that people who are listening to this show can benefit from what you're putting out into the world and, and support it as well. So uh, I give you back the mic to share some thoughts on that.
1: Thank you so much. Where I primarily teach, though I teach at many places, my spiritual home and many people's spiritual home right now is called East Bay Meditation Center. It's located in downtown Oakland, California in the United States. We call it EBMC. And of course, the physical site has been closed down during the pandemic. We're just preparing to try to have our first hybrid class. We'll see how that goes and we might be able to switch to more hybrid classes. East Bay Meditation Center, I think we're now well into our 16th, maybe 17th year where we've had our doors open, and we're an urban meditation center based in Buddhist teachings, and our communities are rooted in what we call diversity and radical inclusivity. We are a very, very diverse meditation community now, With people from all over the world who participate online, as well as people who are able to travel to the physical site. And we were intentionally created that way. And our whole purpose for being is to provide access to wisdom teachings and practices that may be of help to people. Again, they may not, they can freely come and go because we're offering everything on what we call a gift economics or donation-only basis so that there are no financial barriers. And this is a dream that we've been able to realize with a lot of help and a lot of brilliant, incredible, very creative activist, artist-type people who've come together to create this community that we call East Bay Meditation Center.
0: And if we want to learn more, how do we do that?
1: If you want to learn more, please come to our website, which is www.eastbaymeditation.org. And we also have quite a few Dharma teachings up on our YouTube channel. And for instance, we have a very active BIPOC or people of color sangha or spiritual community that has a YouTube channel with really wonderful talks that are accessible by everyone.
0: We'll put those links up in our show notes if people want to dive more deeply into this. In the meantime, Mushim, thank you very much for coming on. Just to check, is there anything that I should have asked but didn't?
1: Absolutely not. This, this has been very thorough for a conversation, Dan. And I'm interested in your interest and very grateful for it. So thank you.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you again for coming on, and best of luck to you and to EBMC. I'm a supporter personally.
1: We're very grateful.
0: Thanks again to Machine Patricia Ikeda, and please go check out the East Bay Meditation Center. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation. If you like 10% happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey.